This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 29th. Today, the upcoming vote on the impeachment inquiry, a Supreme Court case about a notorious killer, and coaches for video gamers. Um, where are we right now? We are in a subterranean studio. Actually, we're basically right now at this moment about probably 40 feet above where Alexander Vindman is testifying right now to the House Intelligence Committee and two other House committees. I'm Mike DeBonis. I'm a congressional reporter for The Washington Post, and I'm covering impeachment. I caught up with Mike in the Capitol on a day when there was a lot happening. At the same time that this administration official was giving critical testimony to Congress— House Democrats were also getting ready for an important vote scheduled for Thursday. So we don't know exactly what the House will be voting on, but we know that it will be a vote to in some way formalize the impeachment inquiry and create procedures for the next phase of the investigation, which we think is going to be heavier on public hearings, public testimony, and then, you know, going into the actual drafting of articles of impeachment. That's what they're billing this as, and we'll, we'll find out once we see the text what exactly it does. And even though you haven't seen the text yet, is the expectation that this is something that basically says we believe at least preliminarily that the president did something wrong? Or is it just saying we believe that it's important to keep asking questions? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that there's going to be a re- recapitulation of everything that has happened so far. The fact that you've had multiple witnesses come in and corroborate the original whistleblower narrative that sparked this whole inquiry. But it's also going to say we need more. We need to establish procedures to not only find more facts, but to present them to the American people and lay the groundwork for a potential impeachment. And why is this happening now? Well, a couple of reasons. I think, number one, the House is going to break for a week's recess after this week. So I think part of this is messaging and kind of giving some momentum into a, a period where, they're, you know, members are not going to be here in the Capitol. I think it also is meant to respond to some of the Republican criticism that's only increased. Uh, the level of unfairness for a perfect conversation with the president that they're, you know, the president doesn't have due process. That the process you're engaging in regarding the attempted impeachment is out of bounds. This is being handled irregularly compared to past impeachments. It's inconsistent with due process as we know it. It's a star chamber. And I think that there's some political imperatives. You know, House Democrats met this morning at the DNC and talked about some some research. They'd done some focus groups where they really detected a lot of anxiety among Americans that they don't want this to be a rush to judgment. They want there to be a real fact-finding process. They want a case to be made, a very clear and convincing case for the president's impeachment and potential removal. And I think that that's also weighing on the decision-making right now. Well, because we saw last week... Republicans basically storming one of the hearing rooms, arguing that that hearing should have been made public. So do you think that this vote will 
adequately address those concerns from Republicans and those very public complaints that this process so far has been too behind the closed doors, that there hasn't been enough of a public hearing of the allegations that are being made against the president. Make no mistake, Republicans are are not going to stop complaining about this process. They're going to keep complaining. But I think that this at least gives members some ammunition when they go back to their districts next week to say, listen, we heard the complaints. Here's what we're doing about it. We're giving President Trump the same due process protections that President Nixon and President Clinton had. And they're going to be able to make the case to people who are on the fence that, you know, these are not good faith arguments that Republicans are making. They're more interested in clouding this investigation and obstructing this investigation than they are in actually getting to the truth. And that's the case that Democrats want to make to the American people. And I think that they see this as one one way to help do that. If this vote is going to represent the beginning of a more public stage of the impeachment inquiry, does that mean that all the people that have already shown up on the Hill and have already testified in the basement of the Capitol just to a room full of lawmakers, that they're going to have to come back and do it over again on TV? For some of them, I think that may in fact be the case. I've heard a lot of members on the on the committees and just generally say that they want to hear from Ambassador Bill Taylor, who is the top diplomat in Kiev right now. But there's also witnesses that nobody's heard from yet that I think are definite candidates for public testimony. I think foremost among them is John Bolton, the former national security advisor. But it very much remains in doubt whether he's going to be in a position to testify anytime soon. What does this vote mean for the White House and how are they responding to this? The White House basically came came out with a statement last night. Uh, Stephanie Grisham, the press secretary, said, to paraphrase her, said, you know, Democrats are a day late and a dollar short. You know, if, if they were serious about this, this vote would have happened weeks ago. And Republicans generally are talking about this as a sort of process that's been tainted from the beginning and now cannot be sanctified with just a vote of, you know, at this point. So, you know, there's no really no sign that Republicans are going to you know, change their views based on this vote this week. Now, tell me about this testimony that's happening 40 feet below us right now. I did not bring a tape measure, so I'm not exactly, but 40, yeah, we're two, it's two floors below us in a very secure underground facility. People aren't allowed to bring cell phones in there. Right. You have to check your cell phones at the door. It's just a very solemn place for for this to be happening. So who is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and why is this testimony so important? Colonel Vindman is currently a director at the National Security Council. He's part of the president's extended national security staff. He's the official in charge of European affairs. Basically, you know, has Ukraine in his portfolio as as well as Russia, among other things. He's also a a decorated veteran, earned a Purple Heart in Iraq. This is the first person that the investigating committees have talked to who is actually on the July 25th phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. Last night, ahead of his testimony, his lawyer released his opening statement. He said he he's not the whistleblower. He's not comfortable speculating on who the whistleblower is. And then he just went on to describe his perception of what was happening inside the White House, inside the Trump administration with regard to Ukraine policy. And he talks quite specifically about the July 25th phone call between Trump and Zelensky and his, frankly, horrified reaction to it and his sense that the notion of asking President Zelensky to intervene in a partisan way in the election would be harmful to not only the U.S.-Ukraine relationship, it would be harmful to Ukraine in that it had the, the potential to politicize 
that relationship in the U.S. and potentially harm in the future the willingness of both parties to support Ukraine against the, their Russian threat. Will this potentially be a testimony that's kind of a game changer? We've had a lot of game changers. I am being sparse in my sort of predictions of what what is going to be a game changer and what isn't, because I feel like perspective can get warped from day to day. But this is definitely a milestone in that you do have direct testimony from somebody who is on the call describing their reaction in real time. You, you cannot dismiss this as hearsay. It's not hearsay. This is someone who actually participated. This is a, a major puzzle piece as Democrats try to really fill out this narrative that the whistleblower presented, that the president was engaged in extracting favors from Ukraine for his own political benefit and was potentially holding back foreign aid in order to do it. Mike, thank you so much. My pleasure. Mike DeBonis is a congressional reporter for The Post. Where are we, Martin? So right now we are in the basement of the Capitol and we are outside of a room where a lot of reporters, videographers, photographers are waiting because right now Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Binman is testifying to members of the House. It feels like the, the calm before the storm. It seems like it's kind of become a routine for folks here that every day there is a official from the administration who shows up, who gives testimony about things related to the president. A lot of people hang out outside the room. Afterward, they ask a lot of questions about what happened. But I think this is sort of the state of things in the Capitol right now. On Tuesday afternoon, House Democrats released their proposed resolution. It lays out the rules and procedures for the next stage of the impeachment inquiry. Under the resolution, the House Intelligence Committee will be able to hold public hearings and release the transcripts of depositions, bringing this process out into the open. People were scared, and they were scared not just conceptually. They were scared every minute of their lives that they were outside of their homes, and and even some people when they were in their homes. I know people who were pulling the drapes in front of their kitchen sink window because they were afraid that they might be washing the dishes and someone would shoot them through the window. People were running through parking lots in zigzag patterns. They were canceling football practices and games. They were canceling recess. They were putting up blue tarps to protect people as they pump gas. It it was pervasive. Virtually every law enforcement agency in this area, including local police, the FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service, is looking for whoever is responsible for the worst murder spree that has ever happened here. And the fact that nobody knew what was happening or what would happen next, I think, was the most terrifying thing. The odds of being a victim were quite low. But every one of the victims was just going about their normal lives when it happened. I'm Josh White. I am currently the America Desk Editor at The Washington Post. I used to be a crime and courts reporter in Prince William County, Virginia. And about 20 years ago, Josh covered one of the most notorious shooting sprees in U.S. history. The Washington sniper case took place over about three weeks in October of 2002. Two people, John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo, who was 17 at the time, drove around the Washington region and shot and killed a number of people. There were 13 shootings in all here and many others across the rest of the country. That series of shootings over about three weeks 
terrorized the Washington area and put it into sort of a constant state of fear. Other news today, prosecutors in Maryland said they will file six counts of first-degree murder against the two sniper suspects and seek the death penalty against John Allen Muhammad. They will not seek it for John Lee Malvo, but they do plan to try him as an adult. Both were convicted. Muhammad was sentenced to death and was executed. Malvo was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But now the Supreme Court is looking at that sentence because when he was convicted, Malvo was a minor and more recent Supreme Court rulings have banned mandatory life sentences for juveniles. We'll hear argument next in Messina versus Malvo. Mr. Heitens. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Oral arguments in the case took place earlier this month. Whatever the court decides, it's very unlikely that Malvo actually would end up being released. But the fact that Malvo's case has wound up in the Supreme Court, it brings up a lot of memories for people like Josh, who experienced the D.C. sniper attacks in real time. The entire time we were covering the shootings, uh, we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea who we were looking for. We had no idea who the police were looking for. Nobody knew what was going to happen next, and everybody thought that they could be the next victim, including uh, the reporters that were going to each scene. As I went to each of the shooting scenes— the reporters who were there often talked about the idea that we thought at some point the shooters were going to go out in a blaze of glory and attack everybody at one of these scenes. And authorities were sort of prepared for that idea. You know, the, the response to these shooting scenes was incredible. Do you have any, like, specific memories from going to one of these shootings or the things that happened after? Well, there, there was one thing that stuck out at the Ashland shooting, which was at the Ponderosa Steakhouse, uh, just off of I-95, sort of halfway between Washington and Richmond. Th this was a, a nighttime shooting. A source of mine had called me. I didn't know where to park. Um, I saw the media tent. I decided, OK, I'm going to park in this hotel parking lot. And it started to rain. So you know how it is. It's a little hard to see. It's dark. Um, as I was pulling into the parking lot, a young man ran in front of my car, and I had to slam on the brakes and came within about a half inch uh, of hitting him. Really? And he stopped, and I had that moment of something was just off, but it was impossible to know what was off. And you know, this really bright colored sweater, very big eyes— sort of looked at me and I looked at him and then he just ran off. And I thought, well, you know, somebody got caught in the rain and they're running to go to the hotel. Shortly thereafter, when they arrested the alleged snipers at the time, I saw the picture of Lee Malvo and I realized at that moment that I had almost hit him with my car at that scene. Oh, my gosh. The arrest w was very sudden. It came from a report from a citizen who saw a vehicle in a parking lot in Maryland, and the suspects were asleep inside. The police approached and took them into custody actually quite easily. And what did people find out after that about what was motivating them? What we learned in the immediate aftermath was that they were not at all what anybody thought that they would be. Not that we had a really clear vision of what they would be, but I don't think anyone imagined a guy in his early 40s and a 17-year-old going around shooting people with apparently no reason. When it, when push came to shove and they, they started being interrogated, it was wholly unclear what it was that motivated any of it. I think the closest we've come to understand about what at least started the, the entire thing was John Allen Muhammad's custody battle with his estranged wife. 
What did you learn about the relationship between John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo? And, and how did this 17-year-old become a part of this? Their relationship, Muhammad and Malvo, is one of the most complex relationships I've ever heard of. Muhammad met Malvo while Malvo was very ill and essentially nursed him back to health. He was a wayward kid, uh, split family, was struggling, was in the islands. There was not a chance for a stable personality to take root because from the age of six and a half, I kept bouncing around from home to home, place to place. And Muhammad came in as this guy from the United States who was going to save him and, and rescue him. He became like an adopted son to Muhammad. He gave me his time. His time. That's the only thing we possess. And where we invested tells what we value. He gave me his time. He was consistent. Even though the consistency was madness, he was consistent. He gave me his time. No one else had the time for me. He was following him around, uh, doing whatever he told him to do. And he, he saw this as a pathway to success, you know, a pathway to America, a pathway to something better. Very quickly, when I met Muhammad, I assimilated everything about him from his mannerisms, his religion. I lost my accent. I, it, it was something I'm used to doing in order to please the person I'm around. Malvo said that he was trained to use weapons. He was trained to psychologically separate himself from the person he was before. He did a lot of shooting. He played a lot of video games. He listened to a lot of music that was all controlled by Muhammad. In hindsight, he says that he was being brainwashed, that he was being programmed to become a weapon. He became master puppeteer. It's, I mean, it's like what a pimp does to a woman. That, that's the best description I can offer. So you actually got the chance to talk to Malvo directly about this. You interviewed him in prison. Tell me about that. So we were brainstorming about what stories we could do for the 10-year anniversary. And I thought, hey, why don't we reach out to Malvo? We knew that he was in custody. We knew that he'd had a lot of time to think about what had happened. So I wrote him a letter. Malvo got right back to us and said he was interested. So I arranged with the warden to go interview him in, in a Supermax facility. Uh, I sat down with him for several hours, separated by plexiglass. And in, in kind of unusual circumstances, I was not allowed to have a pen or pencil nor paper, so I wasn't able to take notes. But we, Malvo and I had an agreement that I would do my best from memory and that we would then speak by telephone the next day. Uh, which we did. This call originates from a Virginia correctional facility. You have a collect call from Lee Malvo, an inmate in Red Onion State Prison. And what were some of the things that were most interesting or insightful from those conversations? I was really impressed with how cognizant he was of what he did. Uh, he clearly understood that he was a monster, that he did things that were reprehensible, that he had destroyed lives and impacted the many, many lives that are attached to each of those people. I understand what happened. I understand the role I played. I understand what happened to me. And I understand the consequences and the spillover to, you know, that affected many people's lives. He was remorseful in the sense that he knew what he had done was wrong and wished he could undo it. But also, I, I think most interesting to me, he 
talked about it in a very clinical way, like it was an operation and like he wasn't the one doing it, that someone else had been controlling him and that it probably never would have happened if not for that other person, John Muhammad. Did you tell him about the fact that you had that you had almost run him, run him over, that you had come into contact with him at that one scene? So I asked him if he remembered anything about the night in Ashland. Was there anything that stuck out to him as unusual? And he said, yeah, some dude almost hit me with his car. Really? And so I said, uh, okay, what color was the car? He was like, oh, it was this crazy green color. And I had a Caribbean green Toyota Celica. Wow. And so I asked him, what were you wearing that night? And he said, oh, I was wearing this crazy multicolored sweater. And I said, well, that guy who almost hit you was me. Oh, my gosh. I asked him, what were you doing at that moment? He said, oh, I was running back behind the hotel to go get the rifle where we had hidden it in the woods. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. What did what, what were you thinking when when you realized, like, what you had believed had happened was actually true, that you had almost run into him in the middle of the shooting unfolding? Well, what it really says about these incidents and, and life in general is that we're all intersecting at so many times and in so many ways that we don't even understand. And while everyone was hunting him and while he was eluding everybody, we came within a half inch of interacting in what probably would have been a bad way for for him. And I, what I have thought about a lot in the years since is, you know, had I hit him, which would have been a terrible accident and probably something that would have weighed on my mind, would it have stopped the crimes from going forward? Would he be sitting in jail right now? Would things have ended the way that they did? So tell me more about what the legal rationale is for why he's trying to petition the Supreme Court to lessen his sentence. So the, the Supreme Court has found that minors who are convicted of capital crimes and crimes that carry the most serious sentences need to have the ability to argue for less, that because they are minors, uh, they need to be treated differently. In Virginia, uh, upon conviction of capital murder, there are really two options. One is the death penalty and one is life in prison without parole because Virginia does not have parole. In his case, the jury opted not to pursue death, which was widely seen as an acknowledgement of his youth uh, and the role that he played with a, an adult dragging him through it. What the argument here is, is that that life sentence could not have been reduced, that the judge really only had one option once it was life, which would give minors the opportunity to argue that they were too young to understand the crimes or that they were put in a position that they didn't have a way to get out of and that in certain circumstances, even the worst of the worst crimes could be dealt with some leniency. Do, do you, and I know this is a loaded question, but do you believe your punishment is the appropriate one? No. 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 See, I was a child, man. I wasn't some 17-year-old he'd pick up off the street and just give a gun and say, go kill this person. I was a 14-year-old kid who was homeless, who was taking care of himself, paying rent, paying his tuition, staying out of trouble. Is it, should I be in prison now? Yes. But forever, till February 41st, I don't know. We'll find out. I had dreams at one point. I wanted to do 
great things. Now, in his case, he has several other life sentences on other homicides uh, for which he's been convicted. And in those cases where death was not on the table, there were other options for sentencing. So it, it isn't really so much an argument that Malvo should be released or that he should be eligible for parole. It's just that he and his legal team want him to have the opportunity to make the argument that he should get less time than life. Now, that would require someone sentencing him to opt for less, which is also unlikely given the nature of the crimes and his acknowledgement of his role in them. But it could potentially set the stage for future arguments in other cases involving minors. And this is coming at a time when I think a lot of people are thinking a lot more critically about the idea of criminal justice reform and incarceration of young people and how we've done that in the past and how maybe that needs to change. And I think what Malvo would demonstrate if he were allowed to speak on his own behalf is that he has matured. He, he is a lot different than he was when this happened. Is that a good argument for being lenient now? Is that a good argument for the potential for release? I don't know. What I do know is that the crimes that he committed are among the worst one can imagine, shooting random people for no apparent reason. And I think that is something that prosecutors will argue and, and that would be considered in any court. He had certainly grown and had come to understand the ramifications of what he did. Does that make him any less dangerous? Uh, I don't know. That's a really tough question. Josh White is the editor of the America Desk at The Post. And now, one more thing. Yang. from gaming and esports writer Hawken Miller. He's been following this new trend where people are hiring coaches who can help them get better at video games. It's no fun playing a game that you lose all the time. On the higher skill level, there's amateurs that want to get into that pro space that can rely on these type of coaches to get them there. And then there's older dads and moms that want to be able to play with their kids but don't have the skills to do it and need an extra hand and that's where the coaches come in too. I talked to Anthony Yo and Poppy Ford and they are both utilizing tutoring services. Anthony is Poppy's uncle and Anthony wanted to get better at the game. He felt like he wasn't progressing as much as his niece Poppy was and he wanted to be able to play with her. I got stuck at a level where I just wasn't improving and it was like two or three days in a row, I just couldn't break through that next level. So I found a coach on Fiverr, and we had a great time. You'll find that coach online, and he'll join your game and, and walk you through where you're making mistakes, why you're dying, explaining all of the, the processes. It's, it's a lot like other coaches, like soccer. And he lets us do his thing, and then he says, okay, this is what I saw, and we run through it again slower, and he normally says, okay, now what you want to do is you want to stand to the left of the belt and then build one wall, one floor, one ramp, 
in this motion. And then a lot of times, like in Fortnite, for example, there's a free play mode where there aren't any other people and it's just you and the coach. And that way he can walk you through specific building strategies, let's say. As you're building your, your protective structure, he's giving you comments like, no, you should be further to the left side of this building structure. You'll get a better peak, you'll get a better protection. So it was really fine tuning those types of elements. And then after that, hopefully you get better at the game and, and you learn something. Hawken Miller writes about gaming and esports for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you want to get the latest news about the impeachment inquiry, The Post has a new podcast feed for that. It's an ongoing collection of all the impeachment-related stories from Post Reports and our other political podcasts here at The Washington Post. Can He Do That? and The Daily 202's Big Idea. To subscribe, go to WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or search Impeachment Inquiry Updates from the Washington Post in your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Thank you.